Titus chapter 3. We continue our series. I think this will probably be the final sermon on Titus for a while. Uh, On Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Titus chapter 3. You can find it on page 1199 of the church Bible. And Paul writes this, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, as we come once more to look upon your word, we ask again that you will open our eyes that we may see you as you really are. Open our ears that we may hear and understand the message of your word, and open our hearts that we might receive that message, to be people who worship you in spirit and truth, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. To be a Christian is to take part in a particular balancing act. For on the one hand, We are not really citizens of this world. We belong to another. We have been purchased and promised for another world. We are ultimately citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Yet at the same time, we exist and live in this world. We remain in this fallen world to live amongst its fallen people in its systems and social structures. 
We are God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy people. Yet we are still a sinful people in a broken world, longing for the return of Christ to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. So how do we then, as God's people, live in this world? How do we find that balance between being God's people, yet being people of the United Kingdom? Or for the Christians in Crete, citizens of heaven, yet citizens of the Roman Empire. And it's this challenge and balance that Paul now turns to as he addresses Titus and the Christians in Crete in chapter 3. Paul has already told them that they are to be devoted to the apostolic teaching that came from from Paul himself. They are to have leaders who are devoted to it as well and can stand against anyone who, who is teaching anything which is false. And they are to live out that healthy or that sound doctrine within the Christian community. They are to have grace-filled relationships so that those outside the church can see the way that, that they love one another and care for one another and help one another and teach one another and so be drawn to that community where they may hear and they may see the gospel at work. But Paul also envisages another stage in this progression from a solid apostolic core of teaching out to its leadership, to a community of believers. Paul also wants the Christians in Crete to live deliberately outside that community as well in the pagan world of first century Crete, in their own communities that they live in, under the social structures that exist and that were in place at that time. Not uncritically, of course, But we will see, nonetheless, they are required to live among the pagans in the communities they find themselves in. To use that much misunderstood phrase, they are to be in the world but not of the world. Historically, of course, the church has not been good at this. At times, the church has withdrawn out of the world altogether, set itself up in holy huddles, be these monastic abbeys or monasteries or just grand stone buildings that we have retreated into because of fear or because of arrogance, closing up the doors and casing the gospel in stone and concrete. And yet on the other hand, the church at times has has uncritically merged itself into the surrounding culture and surrounding systems that they just become no different, just a, a piece of the social fabric of the age, no different than the Rotary Club or the football club. In both cases, what happens is that the church loses its missionary focus. It either fails to preach the gospel to the surrounding culture through fear and retreat, or it fails to have a message at all and simply and uncritically merges itself into the accepted cultural norms of the time. But Paul here envisages something entirely different. For he desires the church to be healthy in its beliefs, holding firmly to that apostolic message of the cross, defending it, maintaining it from error and from being deluded. Yet at the same time, they are to engage in the world that they live in. They are to live their lives before that world, to exist within it. They are to be unashamed followers of Jesus in the midst of the social norms and structures that God has placed them in. 
both as a community, as we saw in chapter 2, and as they live their individual lives in the places that God has put them. So in chapter 3, Paul looks at the individual responsibility that believers have to live in this world, but be not of this world, in terms of uh, firstly their relationships with uh, with the authorities, and then with their neighbors in the communities, to the government and to their local communities. So he says in verse 1 that Titus is to remind the Christians of this. For Paul well knows the great, the great capacity that we as human beings have to forget. Remind them, says he. But he needs to remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities. They knew this already, but Paul says, remind them. Be subject to the rulers and authorities, be obedient and ready to do whatever is good. Notice again how this theme comes up, as we've seen it in this letter. Christians are those who are ready to do what is good. And in terms of their service to the state, they are to be subject to its authority and to be obedient to its laws and practices, principles. Now, I'm sure that straight away some of you are thinking, after what I've just said, ah, but, or what if? And it's very true that the relationship between Christians and the state is not always simple. But let's not lose this teaching behind a hundred buts or a hundred ifs that come up as we try and contradict it. There is a New Testament principle that is very clear. As Christians, we are to be subject to the rulers and authorities that are over us. Paul in Romans makes it very plain that the authorities are instituted by God They are there to punish evil and to promote what is good and right. And insofar as those authorities do that, the Christians in Crete were to be loyal subjects of the state, ready to obey the authorities and to be active in promoting what is good. Now let's, of course, deal with the difficulties in all this. Where the general principle is correct, all Christians are to be subject to the authorities that God has placed over us, It is not and must never become an absolute rule. It is only true insofar as those authorities allow us to give our primary and complete obedience to God. Once the authorities ask us to obey them in either practice or belief, in a way that prevents us giving our total commitment to Jesus, then we are not subject to them and we will not obey So, uh, obvious example at the minute, the Scottish government's attempt to redefine marriage. Are we to blindly obey and accept these changes if they do so? Well, of course not. For as Christians, we understand marriage is given by God, not by the state. It has always been and will always be between one man and one woman for a lifelong companionship, for the good of society and for uh, for the bearing of children. That is what marriage is. Insofar as the government promote that and are in agreement with that, we are obedient. But once they fail to promote that, then we will be in disagreement. It's the same on the abortion issue. As Christians, we rightly understand that it is, it is a detestable and a grievous evil in our society. We stand against it, even when the government promote it and allow it. But the general principle still applies to us. We are to be obedient citizens of the state insofar 
as we can still maintain our primary allegiance to God. So we pay our taxes. That's what we do. We are good citizens. We obey the the safety regulations, even when they'd seem to make very little sense. But we do it. We submit all our workers to police checks and things that we have to go through and all the paperwork that has to be done. We do that because we are good citizens. As Christians, we are subject to the laws and authorities and authority of the government and ready to help out doing whatever good we can in our communities. We are people who have a higher allegiance than simply the authorities of this world, but as part of our worship, as part of our devotion to God, We subject ourselves to the authorities and government that God has put in place for his own purpose and as part of his own plan. Now, that is not without its difficulties, as I've said already, especially in countries where the authorities are not friendly or haven't had the years of Christian understanding and tradition that this country has enjoyed. But we need to remind ourselves that we are called to live under, to pray for the authorities that God has placed over us. As Paul would write to Timothy in his first letter to him, we are to pray for kings and those in authority. Why? So that we might live peaceful, holy, and godly lives, and so that the conditions might be right for the gospel to be freely proclaimed, for men to hear it and men to believe. This might have been um, what he said to Timothy. might actually have been in in the back of his mind when Paul was writing these things. For if the church members um, were actively seen as opposing the authorities or taking part in in political or revolutionary activities, with which uh, those things weren't uncommon in Crete at this time under the Roman Empire, then it was a black mark against the church. And as the early history of Christianity showed, the empire was all too willing to persecute and try and get rid of the church. So insofar as they are able, Paul desires that the Christians are to live as people uh, in Crete under the Roman authorities and not bring the message of the gospel into disrepute or give the authorities an excuse to outlaw or persecute the church. But secondly... They are not only to be Christian in their, obedient, uh, in their obedience to the government, but they are to be actively civically minded as well. Verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility towards all men. In their relationships with those around them, in the community, they, they are to use their tongues and their lives to treat others as they themselves would like to be treated. They are not to be involved in slander or hurtful speech, hateful speech. They are to be considerate of others, see the other person's point of view, and be humble. They are not to view others who are outside the church and lost without Christ as somehow inferior or try and walk all over them because we're children of God and you're not. Rather, they are to be gracious in their dealings with others. People they meet and people they know in their community ready to do what is good in their local communities as well as what is good in terms of obedience to the government. And notice here Paul says that we are to be like this to all men, not just the ones we like, the ones that we share skin color with or a common culture with, but everyone. 
no matter what background they come from, no matter what social status they have, to show proper respect and can be considerate towards them. So as Christians in Dundee, we are called to be devoted citizens of heaven, living here in this place that God has put us in. We are to be devoted followers of Jesus, holding firmly to the promises of the gospel and in obedience to the governing authorities, as well as being good neighbors to those around us. To be a good Christian, then, means to be a good citizen, rendering to Caesar what is his and to God what is his, as Jesus put it, praying for the authorities and country and the city that it might prosper under God. Like the exiles in Babylon, they were to pray for the city and wait for God to act. And so we wait here in this city for the greater city, the city whose foundation and builder is God. Here's what John Stott says. Here then, in in brief, is what Christian behavior in public life is to be like. In relation to the authorities, we are to be conscientious citizens, submissive, obedient, and cooperative. And in relation to everybody, irrespective of their race or religion, we are to be conciliatory, courteous, humble, and gentle. Then in verses 3 to 7, Paul gives us the reason why we are to do this, why we are to be good citizens. Again, here he is linking our duty to the doctrine that we believe. These two things go together. Verse 3 uh, should begin with a, a for or a because, which the NIV admits, but it should be there. We are called, <coughs> excuse me, we are called to be social minded Christians because we were once in the darkness ourselves. We were once no different to the pagans that we meet in our streets and in our city. For at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Titus is to make the Christians in Crete fully aware once more of the manner in which they lived and understood reality and life when they were outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, they were foolish, disobedient. They were slaves of their desires and their prejudices. Their understanding was selfish, arrogant towards others, and so their relationships were characterized by envy and hatred towards others. Rather than trying to be good citizens, both of heaven and of the empire, they were solely concerned with their own empires, living life to suit themselves, taking no account of other people, only in terms of self-interest, and taking no account of God or the gospel. The picture Paul paints is one of the human condition, untouched by the grace of God. The Cretan Christians can't stand in judgment on the pagans around them because they were once those pagans. They were once like them, but they'd been changed. But they've experienced the grace of God in the gospel that Paul preached. And as a result, they are no longer what they once were. Now they're different. Once they were disobedient, now they're obedient. Obedient not only to God, but to the authorities that God has put in place. Once they were enslaved to their passions, now they are free to serve the living and true God in holiness. 
Once they hated one another, now they love one another deeply and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the staggering change they experienced through the gospel. But, says Paul, when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. When God sent his Son into the world, when Christ appeared, which, of course, we, we celebrate at Christmas time, he came out of love and the mercy of God to a world that didn't know him, to a people who did not worship him as the Son of God. And he came to save us. Notice how many times in these verses Paul uses that kind of language, either Savior or save us. The reason that Christ appeared as a tiny baby to grow, to become a man who would hang on a cross and there die in our place, suffer the punishment that we should have faced, was to save us. He saved us from the, the wrath of a holy God on a people who hated him and hated each other. God is our Savior. He is the one who took the Cretan Christians from being, a, from being in a place under his wrath to being a new people, a changed people. That is the change that the Christians experienced. God had saved them from sin, from its bondage. He liberated them. And it wasn't because they were worth it. It wasn't because they were good enough for God to act and do this. It wasn't because they deserved it, because, well, they weren't really that bad after all. It wasn't because they were better than murderous, murderers or rapists, although they might have been. But rather, God saved them not because of righteous things done by them, but simply out of his mercy. God had mercy on them. And if you're a Christian here today, God has saved you simply and straightforwardly out of his mercy, out of his grace. God did not have to do it. There was nothing compelling him to act in sending Jesus to die for us. Christmas didn't have to happen. It was an act of grace and mercy on his part. And you see, that's why these Christians on Crete could not look down on those, pagan, uh, in the wor- those pagans in the world around them because they lived like them. They themselves were there in that environment, thinking the way they did, practicing the things that they practiced, but God saved them. He acted out of his mercy and he changed them to bring them out of darkness and into light. How does he do it? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. The means by which God has transformed us from the former way of life to the new life is through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we are born into Adam, we are born into bondage, we are born into sin and corruption. But God has allowed us, out of his grace, to be born again, to get a second chance, to be reborn out of that sinful life into a new life. As Jesus had said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So the Spirit works in us the rebirth so that we are no longer children of Adam, but children of God in Christ. And what's more, the Spirit also renews us, says Paul. I take this uh, here to be a reference to the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit gives us rebirth when we're converted 
and then continues to renew us after the image of Christ throughout our lives. Like a newborn baby, we grow and develop. We aren't just born and that's it. There is progress. There is growth. There is continued uh, development in our lives as the Spirit works in us. I think in Paul's mind here are those passages in Ezekiel regarding the new covenant promise that God would bring when, when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And he would remove that heart of stone and, and give his people the heart of flesh. He would write the law in their hearts and they would obey him from the heart. Because that's what he's basically saying here. God has saved us through the work of Christ on the cross in removing our sinful guilt and giving us a new nature. He has transformed us from being lost pagans in a moral mess to redeem people with the Holy Spirit within us, renewing us, changing us from the inside out. And notice here also the wonderful Trinitarian nature of this salvation that God has given us. God has sent His Son to the manger to be the man on the cross. And God has sent His Spirit to dwell within us, giving us the new birth and renewing us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together in perfect harmony to bring salvation for us, to save us. All out of God's grace towards us. For the triune God has acted not only to save us in the death and resurrection of Jesus in the past, and through the renewing and rebirth of the Spirit in the present, but also to work through His work to prepare us Sorry, for, for a new future that we have with him. For having been justified, says Paul, we have been made righteous. That is, uh, being made righteous and holy in God's sight. We are heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God has not just saved us for this world and this existence. He has saved us for a better world and a perfect existence. Where we will be with him in his triune greatness and majesty in a place where we will not live in exile, live in a, where we will not live in a broken world amongst pagans, but we will live with him in a new heaven and new earth. Think back to the first four verses of this uh, book of Titus and that introduction that Paul uh, wrote down. Look again how Paul has weaved all these elements into this short letter the faith that comes from the gospel that Paul preached, the godliness and good works that come from the life touched by that gospel, and the hope that it gives us. All because God has acted through Christ, all because God has sent His Spirit to make us new. And it's in this faith and knowledge that we then become good citizens, good church members, and people who are devoted to what is good. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. These verses from uh, verse 3 to verse 7 could have been a, a kind of early Christian creed that Paul was simply quoting here, I uh, can't, be, can't be absolutely sure about that, but it looks that way. But they are formed, they do form one of his trustworthy 
sayings that he comes up with in the, the pastorals. Things that he wanted Titus to stress to make absolutely sure that people understood. So that knowing what God has done for them, they would live lives that are devoted. Devoted to what is good. Having been renewed, given the rebirth, they are devoted they are to devote themselves no longer to the selfish ways they used to walk in, but to what is good, to being good citizens in the community, to being good members of their local churches, teaching one another what is good. Because as Paul says, these things are excellent. They are profitable. They are good for everyone. They are what God desires and what pleases and glorifies Him. When His people extend the grace that He has shown to them, to those around them, when we come out of our pagan ways and serve the living and true God. That's what Paul wanted to see on the island of Crete, a church with a healthy devotion, devotion to the gospel message, the message of God's grace, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, devotion to his word, but also devotion to each other in the church as a community, loving one another as we're called to do. And as devoted citizens and members of our communities, always ready and willing to do what is good. Not because they ho we hope to earn our salvation by it, but because we've already received it. And we now rest in the assurance of that faith and that knowledge of the truth in hope of eternal life. May God grant that we too here in this place, as we look at these things in Titus, that we would also live out those lives that are devoted to what is good, devoted to what is good in our streets and shops, in our universities, in our coffee shops, in our bars and restaurants, workplaces and homes that we might be those good citizens, good church members, and devoted gospel people in the midst of this city, so that others might come to God our Savior and find what we have found, find that grace that gives us that new birth and that renewal that God alone can give. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you have shown us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of your Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your sacrifice on the cross has purchased our salvation. You have saved us by the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by the rebirth. You have caused us to be born, Lord, in this world, and you have caused us to be born again into Jesus Christ. And how we thank you for that mercy and that grace that you have extended to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be those who serve you, to be those who are devoted to what is good in our communities and in our country. Lord, we pray for those in government and authority that you will give them wisdom to govern by what is right and good, and that they themselves will be devoted to what is good. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. 
For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.